am so happy to be here this morning and to share with you all. Um, I'm going to be teaching on a topic, as Ryan said, kingdom hospitality. And I teach on this topic. I've taught here uh, probably, I think it was three or so years back where I taught on this here. But it's, it's a message that I share around the country when I go and I speak. It's my main job is I go and I speak around the country on a variety of topics having to do with relational and sexual um, wholeness and healing. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about anything sexual today. I could see a few panicked looks in some of the new people like, oh no, what did we walk into this morning? It's like, <laughs> you never know what true. But um, this morning I'm going to be talking on kingdom hospitality. And I know that the minute that we bring up the topic of hospitality, a couple things happen in a room. In every room that I teach on this on, number one, if you're a woman here, you may have gone into a flop sweat because hospitality carries with it a whole lot of cultural baggage. Just that word itself renders images or expectations that generally in our culture have landed on the wife or the woman of the home. So let me just right now say to you, if you are not Joanna Gaines, if you are not Martha Stewart, don't worry about it because that's actually not what biblical hospitality is. And so if, if you are feeling like this, oh dear God, what are they gonna ask me to do? What a, I don't cultivate anything in my home except for dust bunnies, don't worry. <laughs> now the other thing that happens in a room whenever we bring this topic up is most of the men check out. Because you know when we think, talk about hospitality, I, I can see on the faces and the minds as it flashes through their eyes, well that's woman's work, blah, 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 blah. No, no. No, friend, it's not. So we're just going to take a few minutes to, to um, define what kingdom hospitality is and its biblical precedent, what it means. And then we're going to be good biblical interpreters, and we're going to do what you have to do with the Bible. Number one, you let the Bible interpret the Bible. You understand that the Bible was written to an audience. The scriptures mean what it means to that original audience. And only that, one meaning several different applications. And then we take what it's saying to that original audience and we contextualize it for us today. And we say, what does this principle mean to me here now in Medford, Oregon? So I wanna just talk about this for a moment. Hospitality has played no small part in biblical culture and history. In fact, it was one of the tenets on which the moral structure of the community of faith was built from the children, uh, the Hebrew children, the children of Israel, and then moving forward into the Christian community that we just spent months with a few breaks in between studying in the, the communities of transformation. So I just want to talk about this. First and foremost, the Greek word for hospitality in, in the scripture is philoxenia, which means the love of the stranger. And the love of the stranger and hospitality as this played out played such a profound part in biblical culture and history. And here's a few examples uh, just from the scripture. It took on so many different forms. Uh, you can first begin to see this uh, in Genesis 18, characterized by Abraham and how he engaged with the angel of the Lord when he came on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not a story I'm gonna bring up today. Or should I? I don't know. <laughs> 
At any rate, what this looked like, it included humble and gracious reception of travelers into one's home for food, for lodging, for protection. That's, you can see that in Genesis 18, Genesis 19, Job 31. Uh, it, it included permitting the alienated person to harvest the cornered person to harvest the corners of your fields. This was called gleaning. You can see this uh, multiple times in the scripture, but you, particularly Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, and Ruth chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, and the incredible story of Ruth and Boaz. You can see this played out. Um, it includes clothing the naked, Isaiah 58, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel um, 18, 7, and 16, tithing food for the needy, Deuteronomy 14 and 26, and including the alien or the foreigner in religious celebrations, that's Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16. And beyond just those Old Testament examples, there are example after example after example after example in the scriptures of not only how God called his people to be people to do these things, but also how the Lord has done this for us. And when you begin to distill down, and please, uh, let's understand that when we look at commandments like this, we have very specific commandments to a time and a place, but instead of being very, you know, legalistic or rigid or black and white about it, let's do what we need to do and look at the concept or the heart or the principle that God is instilling in his people and figure out how do we then apply this? Because I don't know about you, but I don't own a field. Does anyone here own a field or a vineyard? If so, I'm coming over. But... I barely own my own lawn. I can't like manage that half the time. But in the biblical concept of this, particularly in this idea of the, the, the edges of your field, essentially what the principle is, is leave room and margin for those in need in your world. It's to look at what the Lord has given you and steward it in such a way that there is space and resource for those around you who might not have what you have. And if we were to take that principle and just simply distill it down into a modern day context, it might look a lot more approachable, also a lot more vulnerable. So I wanna tell you a quick story before I go into any of the other rest of this for just a moment about some people in my life when I was much younger who displayed making room in their space, in their margins for, for those who maybe didn't have a lot. I wanna tell you about a couple named Jean and Kathy Stevenson. And I met Jean and Kathy when I was a, just a teenager going to my church in my hometown in Yakima, Washington. And a little context just for, for all of you about who I was back in those years. I come from a broken history. Um, I was alienated and, and really estranged from so much of my family in early years of my life. And so by the time I was a teenager, I really didn't have family. I was living and taken in by my grandparents when I was 14, and they were, they were busy fighting cancer and doing grandparent things, like just surviving, and they were low income, and they did not attend church, and I did. And so my world and most of my family became the youth group and the, the leaders that were a part of the youth group. And Jean and Kathy Stevenson were some of those leaders. They were 40-something parents with two kids that just decided, they want to love on the kids in their world. They did not have a fancy home. In fact, they lived on the outskirts of our already small kind of podunk town. So they were the podunk of the podunk of the podunk. I think that their home was a converted double wide <laughs> out on the middle of nowhere. And their kitchen was, I, I kid you not, smaller than this stage. 
and it was a square little kitchen with like a table in the middle of it. I don't know how they cooked any meals in that, let alone the constant welcome of 30 to 40 teenagers on a weekly basis that would crowd into this tiny little kitchen surrounded by this tiny little table where there was platters of what they called dip in the middle of it, which was like seven layer bean dip. And we would voraciously attack the dip night after night after night. And, and this was a family that um, just by virtue of their leadership in the youth group, their home was open. And so, so many of us would find ourselves there into the late hours of the, of the night not doing anything in particular, just hanging out. And I remember the classic line of Gene Stevenson, who was a probably five foot four power lineman who you know just would climb the power lines and work on that for Pacific Power. And he was a stout man and he was just like a, a wonderful dad type figure. And the classic line every night that we were all there, probably around 11.30 or so was like, well, I'm gonna go down into the horizontal resting position now, bed. and. It wasn't a signal that we had to leave. It was just that Gene was excusing himself. And I can't tell you how many hours or pounds of dip that I ate with this family, but it was too many to number. And there were, there were so many opportunities that they had to speak into the life of teenagers, and particularly this teenager, just because they invited us into their life. They just invited us in. On one particular evening, this hit a profound level for me. It was a Christmas Eve service at our church. And I loved the Christmas Eve services. I love candlelight Christmas Eve services and the danger inherent in giving children candles <laughs> in a room. This was like the late 90s. I mean, so you know there was a lot of Aquanet in hair. I mean, there was risk involved in this candlelit service. And I remember sitting in, in my church, there was a section where the youth group mostly sat at every service. And near the end of this Christmas Eve service, the senior pastor made an announcement. He had planned the service down to the minute. And he had this idea to tell everyone to, because he knew in our church, the youth all congregated over here, but this was a family service. So he said, at one point, okay, now's the time where I'd like you all to gather with your families for a time of family prayer at this Christmas Eve service. And I sat in this section as all of my friends scattered to go to their families, and I sat recognizing how incredibly alone I was. In fact, I always knew and carried with me this sense of loneliness or rejection. It was, it was my constant companion. But I have never been in an environment where it was more highlighted or the reality was more highlighted. And in a service where I really did not expect it to come. And so I don't know if any of you have had that. I'm pretty sure most of you have had the experience where you feel exposed or you feel shamed or you feel uh, incredibly vulnerable and the heat begins to rise from out underneath your collar and the, you can feel your pulse just pounding in your ears. And it's that feeling of like, I need to get out of here right now. And so I, I tried to manage my face because I knew as an emotional person I was going to break down, but I did not want to break down in front of this church. I did not want to ruin the environment of this candlelit service with my own brokenness, which I felt like I was the only one carrying that. And so I got up and I made my way to the doors, to the back 
you know, doors of the sanctuary. And I knew that once I got through those doors to the lobby, I had about a 30 yard dash through the lobby to the doors outside. And then I could get into the parking lot and that's where I could fall apart. That's where I could scream and cry and sob. That's where I could throw up if I needed to, because I felt like I wanted to. I just needed to get from the, the doors of the sanctuary through the lobby and then I could escape the exposure of how much of an orphan and a reject I was. I made it to the door, like these doors, the double doors, I went out. The second it closed, I ran in a full sprint to try to get out the lobby door. And I almost made it. But as I reached the end of that 30 yard dash, I almost hit the crash bar of the doors out to the parking lot when a hand grabbed the back of my collar. And have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, you know, like, I swear I almost fell on my butt. And I turned around like snot and tears flowing. You know, you know those moments where you're like, you know, like, it's just the worst. Like, have you ever had that like moment? That's where I was at. And as I turned around to see what, who, you know, an angel of the Lord, I don't know. There was Kathy Stevenson. And I don't know how she beat me to the door. Uh, she was a five foot one, like almost 50 year old woman with, you know, early arthritis. I don't know how she beat me to the door, but she did. And as I turned around and I looked at her, tears and snot a flowing, I saw the tears in her eyes. And she looked at me and she said, where are you going? And all I could say is, I don't have a family. And through her own tears and compassion and mercy, unlike any I think that I've seen to date, she said, yes, you do. And she led me back into the sanctuary where I did not wanna go to where Jean, her husband, and Sean and Julie, her kids, and about 10 other misfit toys, like myself, were all gathered for family prayer. And they welcomed me in. Love of the stranger, hospitality. Making space and margin for people in your world. You know, we, we bring up this concept and, and honestly, what I don't want to do this morning is I don't want to create this as a command for you. I don't want to create this as a legalistic rule or even like a formula. But what I want to begin to do is to open my own heart up and the heart of God through the scriptures and begin to communicate to you the power and the warfare involved in something so simple. I'll be honest with you when I say that I don't know that I would be standing on this stage. I do not believe I would be a husband or a father or a pastor, if it weren't for the influence of people like Kathy and Jean Stevenson in my life. Ordinary people with no theological training, with no psychological training, but just hearts that were open and margins that were clear for the people in their world. It's taking the commandments of the Old Testament, the, the the precepts and moving them into principle and beginning to say and ask the question, what are the edges of your field? What are the margins in your life that maybe you haven't opened up to the stranger or to the 
to the foreigner or to the disenfranchised. But what might God be asking you to do today? Let's keep walking through this. James 1 has this particular scripture that, that I, has become a hallmark of life for me. And I love the way that the message paraphrase puts it. It's James 1, verses 26 and 27. It says this, anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. The kind of religion, that kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this, reach out to the homeless and the loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from a godless world. In more contemporary interpretations, it would say, take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress and remain unstained by the world. But I love the message translation where it says the homeless and the loveless because orphan and widow, we, we might look around our world and say, we are, we're not surrounded by orphans and widows necessarily. But again, if we're looking just on the black and white rather than the principal level, then we're missing it. But if we look at this translation of homeless and loveless, and instead of looking at it from a like, black and white, because we do, we have homeless people all around us and we have loveless people all around us. But if we take this in relational context and say, could we have people sitting right next to us who feel homeless and loveless? Yeah, I would even say, of course we do. You can be surrounded in a room that calls itself a community and still feel like you don't belong and still feel like no one knows you and no one sees you. reach out to the homeless and the loveless. You know, in my ministry, in my world, I, I come from a background of sexual brokenness and sexual identity brokenness. In particular, I, you know, you can get my book and please get my book. And you can read all about the story. You can even read a chapter about this very topic in there. Um, but I'll say this, for someone who walked out, who surrendered their sexual identity and orientation to the Lord 25 plus years ago, you know, once identifying as gay and now married with kids and there's a whole, buy the book. But I can tell you that I've worked with a community of people who have been surrendering their identity and their community and their orientation to the Lord. And one of the, one of the most profound struggles in this is not so much of whether or not God can, can address your brokenness or that God loves you beyond your sin. That's not the biggest struggle in this area. It's do I, do I fit in and find a family in the church? Because for that community, leaving the LGBTQ community, which is incredibly inclusive and welcoming, for a community that, as often been said in the people that I've ministered to, it's easier to find sex in the gay community than it is a hug in church. This idea of hospitality carries incredible spiritual weight. And can I say that, although that's a really good example, this concept is not just for them, it's for all of us. Psalm 68, 8, uh, 68, 6 says this, God sets the lonely in families, your families. I want to, this is a true interpretation of the Bible. God sets the lonely in your family. And if you are resistant to that fact, can I just say that you might be missing the heart of God? Nope, you are missing the heart of God. No might about it. 
When we exist as the family of God and embodying and embracing this rigorous, incredible spiritual dis- discipline of hospitality, we must recognize that we are going to have to make space at our tables and in our homes and in our world. You know, your margin might not be the edges of a field, but your margin might be that extra space at the table this Thanksgiving. It might be that instead of isolating yourselves on Christmas morning and saying, we have our traditions, it might mean actually coming down here and helping Jesse hand out burritos to the homeless community in our city. It might mean maybe, maybe you're not ready for that. That's okay. It might just mean just being willing to sacrifice some of your own comfort and some of your own individualism for people that may have nowhere else to go. This idea of hospitality and placing the lonely in families, it, it isn't just a good idea or one spiritual discipline. It literally is at the heartbeat of the Christian faith. In fact, it's one of the hallmarks that when Jesus says, they will know you are mine by your love, that this actual characteristic displays that better than almost anything else that I know. You know, chronic loneliness and disconnection should never be something that people experience within the church. And yet it is chronic in our world right now. Loneliness and isolation has become so much more a pandemic than anything else. And it is something that not only strikes in our cultural context currently, but it strikes against our very own selfish, self-preserving natures. Because when I talk to you about hospitality, it's not just something that I've received in my life, although it's often very difficult to learn how to receive hospitality from people and to receive welcome when you feel rejectable and you feel suspect and you feel scared of opening your heart and your life up for people to see you in your vulnerability. Receiving hospitality is hard, but giving hospitality is really hard too. And it does strike against this self-preserving nature. But let me tell you, I'm never gonna get up here and share something with you that I haven't practiced ad nauseum. I will tell you this, when my wife and I first moved to Medford about seven years ago, um, Suze, any of you know Suze, she's wonderful. She's also incredibly introverted, although you would not know that unless you actually know her. That she, and by the way, how many introverts do I have in the room? Raise your hand. And I know that's a big ask for introverts, but raise your hand higher. Can I just remind the introverts in the room that introversion does not mean that you are allergic to people. It does not mean that you, you must not engage with people. It means that you recharge best alone and you recharge for a purpose. Why do we recharge? To be able to give back out. Now I'm an extrovert, like 99.99999% extroverted, as you might imagine. I also had to remember that I need to recharge and, and give my wife the ability to recharge alone. And she reminded me of this after the first 100 days that we lived in Medford. When she came up to me, she said, Drew, we lived here for 100 days. I said, okay. And she said, Drew, 68 of those days we've had house guests. I said, sure. 
She said, 14 of those days you've been traveling with work. I said, okay. She looked at me, she said, all the days, Drew. So when I say this, I, I, I share this concept with you, not as someone who's just pontificating a thing for you to like go and be holy. No, I'm telling you this from a person, our family has opened our home so much and so often, this is a practice that we value because it has transformed our lives. It has transformed our lives, not just the reception of hospitality that, that I received and that we received over the years, but the practice of opening your home transforms your life. The practice of making space at your table transforms your life. You see, you don't have time to worry about whether or not all the dust bunnies are vacuumed or whether or not your meal is perfect or whether or not the place settings are perfect. You don't have time to worry about whether or not the person that you might invite to live in your home will see you not parenting the best. They will see it. They will hear you when you are in the bathroom and you think no one's at home and you know that you've eaten chili that day and you just... Do you, you all know what I'm talking about, right? When you open your home to hospitality, when you open your life, people hear you fart. It happens. There's no room for pride or pretense when you open your life and your heart and your home in this practice of hospitality. You are seen and you see. You are known and you know. And you begin to have opportunities to not only walk into some of the most broken and hurting and damaged places in the hearts of people, but can I say this? All the wounds we carry in this life were created in relationship and it's only in relationship that they're healed. Several years back, you know, I'll say this disclaimer, hospitality carries with it great risk. So please don't hear me like paint this in Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses. If you do this, if you practice this, there's so many great rewards, but you will be hurt as well. And you will experience heartache. There's a risk with this, but the risk is worth it. Several years back, uh, I was working in a ministry called Portland Fellowship in, in Portland, Oregon. And this is the ministry that, that helped transform my life. And so one of the things that I did as I ran an, a live-in program for, for men and women that would come from across the country to be discipled in this struggle. And they lived in community, which is a danger and a risk when you put all people who struggle with sexual issues living in community together. <laughs> There's some problems that come up once in a while. And one of the problems that came up in one of these seasons is a young man that had been living in that community um, crossed some boundaries with another participant and he was kind of predatory in this and it became unsafe for him to be able to be a part of this community living in this house for a season. And he had moved from across the world to be a part of this and his story for me was very heartbreaking and, and you know, being, knowing him and opening our lives up to him, I understood where he was coming from and the decisions that he made. So it, it made sense why he struggled the way that he did and, and the bad choices that he made, but we still had to deal with this reality. And so after meeting with that community and confronting this, and this, this young man just feeling shamed and feeling exposed and feeling you know, guilty and 
probably some condemnation that the enemy was pouring on him. He was waiting for the hammer to drop. He was waiting to be kicked out of the community. He was waiting for punishment. And after a meeting that we had with the other members of this community, and we, we knew that he was gonna be removed from this community for a season, I called my wife, Suzanne, and I said, make up the guest room. And as I brought this young man to our home, he was dissociative and like detached the entire drive. He was waiting for punishment. I pulled up to our house and Suze met him at the door, gave him a huge hug, led him to the couch, sat him down on the comfy couch, said, do you want a blanket? We always have fuzzy blankets in our house. <laughs> we need fuzzy blankets in our world. Handed him the fuzzy blanket, said, do you want a cup of tea? Sure. Got him a cup of tea, sat down. I sat down in my chair, Sue sat down in hers. We turned on Netflix and we sat watching old episodes of Friends. Because why not? It was a rough day, wanted to detach a little bit. Watch Friends laugh. We're sitting there. He's covered in a blanket and has a cup of tea that he hasn't drank, sitting shell-shocked on the very comfortable couch and we're laughing at Friends. After about 15 minutes, he goes, I don't understand what's happening here. We both, okay, what's not to understand? And he looked at us, mug in hand, covered neck high in a blanket, and he looked at us, tears in his eyes, he goes, how is this punishment? And Suze looked at me, he says, buddy, it's not, it's love. You don't need more punishment. You need love. Now, I've just shared with you a little example of welcoming a sexually broken, predatory-ish type person into a guest room of a home. We had three kids at this point. Some of you might be going, are you folks crazy? I'd like to refer you back to the 100 days conversation. So yeah, a little bit. But also, I had people in my life who let me in when my life was a mess, when I was a risk. I wanna tell you another story of another Kathy, Kathy Ryan. When I moved to Portland from my hometown, I was just beginning my discipleship process, dealing with my sexual struggles, my addictions, my identity issues, and I found myself at this church, this particular church in Clackamas, Oregon. And I was accosted by this woman, my first day there, she described herself as the chatty mom, Kathy Ryan. And by accosted, I do mean accosted, accosted with hospitality. She was, she had a bloodhound type ability to find the disenfranchised and the lonely and to get them. And her and her husband had four kids. They were all part of the youth group. Their home was open all the time. This woman was so frugal. They lived off of a teacher's salary and that's it with four kids in Portland, Oregon. This woman was so frugal she could stretch a penny until Lincoln begged for mercy. This was her spiritual gifting. Like she was amazing. And they welcomed me into the family. And I began leading, you know, being a leader at the youth group and their, their two oldest sons, Michael and Andrew, amazing kids, 
They were 14 and 12 at this point, and I began mentoring Michael, and honestly, Michael became like my best friend, and I was 23 years old, and this was not healthy, by the way, just FYI. And one day as I was hanging out at their home again, Myron and Kathy kind of dismissed their kids and they, they said, hey, Drew, we want to talk to you a little bit. And I said, okay. And, and I felt immediately exposed and ready to be rejected. And they shared something with me. They shared, you know, we love you and we love your investment in our kids' lives. I said, oh, good. This is not a bad conversation. And they said, but, and I thought, oh, crap. I said, but it's a problem that you're 24 years old and your best friend is a 14-year-old boy. And I immediately felt shame and I felt judgment coming and I felt like they're going to reject me. Again, my family has always been my church family. Up until recent years when the Lord has done amazing restoration in my own family, my, my church family is my family. So I was ready to be kicked out because here's this crazy guy that is obviously broken and we don't want him near our kids is what I expected to come. And what they said to me and said is like, listen, we know you and we know your heart and we love you and we trust you with our kids, but how you're living is stunting your own growth. And we don't want to leave you broken and we don't want to leave you immature. So here's what we're going to require of you. You need to make some friendships your own age. And we want you to come back to us and tell us what you're doing. And you'll still have access to our kids because we trust your heart and we know that you're honest and we know that you've got integrity. And we, we love your investment in our kids, but not at the expense of your own maturity and health. And so we want you to find some friends your own age. Do you know what they were doing for me? Parenting me. They took responsibility to parent a 23-year-old man that did not get parented the first time around. Was there a risk? Yes, there was. Was I, you know, I was, this was back in 2000-something. Nobody was talking about their sexual brokenness in church. I was very vocal about it. I had been just that year on national television sharing about it. Do not YouTube Drew Barriessa and the Sally Jesse Raphael show because you'll find it and it's not great. But, <laughs> but they were loving me and they were parenting me because hospitality makes space in our world for people that have been isolated and rejected and left broken and alone. And I took their parenting advice. And several years later, it was, it was Myron and Kathy that hosted the rehearsal dinner at my wedding. My dad went up to them at my wedding, handing them a check for the dinner that they created. They drove from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington to host this thing. And Kathy served like 45 people for less than $100. <laughs> Seriously, my dad was aghast at like, how much did this cost? And she said, oh, I'm a 97. What? And as he handed the check for this meager amount to cover this rehearsal dinner that they put on, I'll never forget hearing my dad say to them, thank you for loving my son when I couldn't. This idea of hospitality, kingdom hospitality, you guys, it costs us a lot, but it gives more than it costs. 
Have any of you been blessed by the messages that I've given here on this stage? Have any of you benefited from the counsel or from the wisdom that has been offered by my book or by my, then you need to thank both Kathy's because I would not be the man that I am if it were not for ordinary people that didn't know a lick about my struggles but knew how to love and open their home. And I'm gonna tell you this right now, no one is disqualified from offering up and existing in this spiritual discipline which will transform you and the world around us. There's a reason that it runs the entirety of scripture, this idea of welcoming into family. On a practical level, because I, I have two minutes to give you practicalities. If you are listening to this and going, oh, Lord, maybe we might need to consider this. If you haven't been a, a family or an individual that has either welcomed this idea in, that's okay. We all can start somewhere. And let me give you a first few steps to consider. Start with looking at your life and looking at what your margins are. Do you have space in time and in resource or have you filled everything and there's no room for the stranger? There's no room for the outcast. If that's the case, can I tell you right now, you need to do some pruning. And it might just simply be the first step of saying, okay, God, tell me where to prune just to make space. If the, if the only thing you do today is begin to welcome the Lord to speak to you about how to make space, that's a great first start. If you have margins in your world, then I would just ask you to consider how am I giving them out? Who am I welcoming in? And how do I begin to do that? Sometimes the margins might look like looking at who we give our time and our attention to. And there is absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, there's something very good about giving time and space to people that we know and love and that are in our community. We need that. You need good community. But if you are just in the practice of only receiving in community but not opening space for more, that's a problem. Practically speaking, here's a few things that you can do to begin to practice this discipline or prepare your heart for this discipline. Are you in a home group? If not, join one or start one. Begin the practice of welcoming people into your life who you haven't normally let into your life. Maybe look around and ask yourself, is there someone in this room who needs a place at my table this Thanksgiving or this holiday season? How profoundly lonely this season can be for people without family, nobody in this room should feel that. We carry the heart of God with us. That heart calls us to look for the lonely and set them in the family. Maybe it looks like asking the Lord to confront places in our life where we've just been selfish. Selfish with our resources, selfish with our time. Whatever it is, can we, can, can we be courageous today and invite the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to our hearts and make space for this. 
I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to enter in a time of response. But can we do this? Can we bow our heads right now? Father, your heart is for family. Your heart is for us as your children to be known by the love we display, by the welcome we make, by the space we create for those who are longing to be connected to family. So Lord, right now we invite you to come and to begin to reveal our hearts to us. Confront the places in our life that you want to trim out so that there's room and space for welcome, for the stranger, for the lonely, for the, for the, for the disconnected. Father, for those in the room right now, maybe this is, maybe this is you. If you're afraid to be vulnerable and ask, if you're afraid to receive because you're afraid of judgment, can I just pray, can you, can you take this challenge and ask the Lord to minister to the places where pride has caused disconnection? Where fear, fear of rejection, fear of, fear of exposure, fear of judgment, has caused you to not connect, to not try to connect? Can I challenge you to welcome the Lord into those spaces this morning? Maybe some of you in this room are, are wrestling with this, like, oh, our lives are too full, and, and even if we trimmed off some of the things off of our schedule, I just, I don't have energy for this, I don't have capacity for this. Can I invite you to ask the Lord to increase your capacity? I believe that there is a calling on this church, on this family to be an example of family. To be such a profound example of kingdom love and kingdom welcome and kingdom hospitality that wounds that have been carried in this valley for generations begin to be healed because of no other reason than we made space. For some of us, the ways we've been living just won't fit this anymore, so we need something new. We need a, a new way of living, a new orientation of our heart. And if you're feeling that, that gentle conviction or maybe the strong conviction of the Lord today, can I ask you to be bold and to ask him to give you a new perspective, a new heart? a new way of living.
God wants to do incredible things through such simple means. Such simple, simple steps. As we worship, I invite you to carry this conversation with the Lord into our response. And please, please take seriously what the Lord says. Don't just have a moment where you, you feel something and then you put it in a box and move on. idea what God could do through you and in you for the kingdom by making space.